Welcome back to Reality Asserts Itself. I'm Paul Jay. We're continuing our discussion with Ambassador Joe Wilson. So, Ambassador, in the days leading up to the Iraq War, uh, the UN passes resolutions to find out if there are, in fact, weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Uh, there's some evidence that Saddam actually wanted people to think there was. Uh, it turned out it was a bluff. Uh, the inspectors do go in and they start saying, we're not finding anything. And Hans Blix is, is saying to the CIA and the U.S. government that, you know, if you know where they are, because you say they do, well then tell us and we'll go find them. And it's getting clearer and clearer that there aren't any. And there, in fact, is no imminent threat to the United States. So where are you when this is happening? And, and as you start to see what's unfolding, how do you decide what your role is in this? Well, I was in the middle of the debate. Um, I got in the debate in, I don't know, June of 2002. And again, um, my sort of position was, um, if we're gonna go to war, we have to have a reason to go to war. There's gotta be a real threat to our national security. That's just the way we're supposed to do wars. We're not supposed to be parading our troops around the world willy-nilly. It's also international law. It is also international law. And, um, and so during the sort of the run-up in this debate, we got the inspectors back in um, and they were producing their reports. And, and anybody who sort of followed Iraq from the Gulf War on knew that we had known from the mid-90s that there was no nothing to the nuclear program, that that had all been destroyed. I think there was a reasonable basis to assume they still had a chemical weapons program because we'd seen their use of chemicals during the Iran-Iraq war and mustard gas and chlorine is not that hard to manufacture. <clears throat> I think there was a, um, I think it was reasonable to worry about a biological program um, but certainly on the nuclear side, which is the one real strategic weapon, um, everybody knew there was nothing to it. Uh, so um, I thought at the time, because they were clearly they they were clearly pounding the uh, the drums of war. They being they being the neoconservatives and Cheney and his acolytes and the juggernaut that ended up producing this war. And I thought that, that um, one, we didn't have an international consensus on the use of all possible means to engage Saddam in this way. Uh, if you recall, uh, at, at the end, uh, uh, Tony Blair came to the White House and, and um, in, I don't know, March or April, and uh, they, were in the, um, they were in the Rose Garden and uh, and um, Bush said to Blair that uh, after we're done with Iraq, we'll focus on the Palestinian crisis. And I happened to be on CNN at that moment. They asked me my reaction. I said, well, they're not gonna go to the UN to get a second resolution. That basically, that's the deal that was cut. Bush would support what Blair needed, which was, which was to be able to tell his people that we were still concerned about Arab-Israeli issues. And in exchange for that, we didn't have to go to the UN to get a resolution for the use of all appropriate means to achieve our objectives. Which 
Which without, is war. without that was the war resolution, and without that resolution, the war is illegal. And without that, the war was essentially it was illegal. Yeah. And um, now, are you in government at this time? No, no, I was out of government. I left government in '98. I was a, I got into the debate really as a concerned citizen. I thought I was doing, um, exercising my responsibility, as somebody who knew something about the issue, and who had a point of view that I thought was relevant to the discussion. So uh, and you had a particular credibility, because in the end you had supported the in intervention in the first Gulf War. Oh yeah, oh yes, oh yeah. I, I would defend that to my dying day. I mean, I think what we did in the first Gulf War was uh, was exactly the way that you would manage an international crisis. It wasn't existential in nature, but using uh, the international community, the UN system, and an alliance of of uh, of uh, like-minded allies to uh, achieve your goals. And we're going to talk about more about that in, yeah. a, in, a, in a future segment. Yeah. So, so, so you find yourself in this public debate, yep. and then you get a call. Um, no, I, I, the call to go to Niger? Yeah. No, I, that was before I got in the debate. Uh, I, um, um, in, in early 2002, uh, there was all this intel that was being generated, that was being run up and down the uh, the stovepipes, um, and um, uh, there was some talk that uh, Saddam had somehow tried to buy uranium yellow cake from Niger, and I had a, a very special relationship with the Nigerian government at that time. I had helped them through a coup d'état, an assassination of a president, and, and restoration of their of their civilian government. You've been posted there. I'd been posted there in 76, but I was also in the White House when there was uh, the overthrow, military overthrow of the government. In Clinton White House. In the Clinton White House, yeah. yeah. And uh, so I'd helped with my, uh, I'd helped the Nigerians work through that, that process. Um, and it's, 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 a, it's a little bit arcane, but uh, but we've passed laws, and European Union have passed laws that if they're the military overthrows civilian governments, U.S. development assistance stops. And if you're uh, a Nigerian, you can't survive without international assistance. Um, and so they had the military coup. The military sort of established himself over the civilian government, and they sent the civilian uh, government off to see us to try and get their aid restored. And so that I got into that, uh, I got into the process of helping them through the restoration of civilian government, um, um, and it took about three or four years. So my relationship was rather special. So when it came up that that um, that there was a document out there uh, suggesting that they, the Nigerians and the Iraqis, or the Iraqis had tried to buy uranium yellow cake from Niger. I was asked to go out there and, and, and you know, talk to my, the people I knew about it. In fact, at the meeting was um, all the kind of technical experts. This was at the CIA. Anybody who knew anything about uranium, any, anybody who knew anything about Niger, and anybody who knew anything about Iraq. And one of the guys there was uh, Greg Thielman from the State Department, uh, Bureau of Intelligence and Research, uh, the one bureau that actually had the best information on the threat that Iraq did not pose to the United States. And um, the memo that came out afterwards, which later was, was used to um, 
to betray my wife's identity as a CIA officer also contained a rather telling sentence, which was there were two people in the meeting who said there was no need for me to go out to Niger uh, because the embassy um, had understood everything that was going on in the uranium business there from the time that they'd opened their first mines in the early 70s. And those two people were Greg Thielman and myself. So we all, we all understood going into this that, that the trip out there was basically, <clears throat> we were answering a question posed by the vice president uh, because of some document that had come to his attention outside of normal, normal channels. Which uh, was supposed to be like an invoice or something, was it? It was, a, it was, yeah, it was sort of a memorandum of agreement. And, um, Between the Iraqis and Niger yeah, and, for Yellow Cake. Yeah, and it was based on a trip taken to Niger by the Iraqi ambassador to the Vatican, a man who I had known for many, many years, a man by the name of Wissam Zahawi, who when I was in Baghdad was the, uh, was the deputy secretary, deputy foreign minister. And... Um, he went to the Vatican as his, as his retirement posting, um, even though as the great diplomat he was, he could have had his choice of posts. But he was also a world-class opera singer and a huge fan of the opera. And so where else to have your retirement post than in the land of opera? And so he was at the Vatican and... Iraq, like many countries, they, they accredit their ambassadors to a number of different posts and have them based in one location. So we saw him happen to be accredited to all of West and Central Africa. And he made a trip down through West and Central Africa in 2000, 2001, something like that. And the reason for the trip was to encourage African chiefs of state to visit Saddam, to come to the international fair that they had there every year because part of the restrictions we tried to impose on Saddam after the Gulf War was international travel to Baghdad and so he was trying to get chiefs of state to violate what we the travel ban we'd impose and try and give him some some status and somehow during the course of that a lot of people decided they would try and use that to suggest he was trying to buy uranium in, in Niamey. This document, which is supposed to be this memorandum of agreement, yeah. you called and others have called forged. Yeah. Who forged it? I don't know. I don't know. And then after you, there, come, you come back from Niger saying yeah. there's no evidence that this document's for real or there ever was such an agreement? Yeah, so I, I came back from Niger and said, um, and said um, uh, there's nothing to this story um, that, in fact, when I talked to the minister in charge of, uh, of the nuclear business, of the uranium business, he said, yeah, there was an Iranian delegation that came by one time and showed some curiosity, but that didn't go anywhere. And the prime minister said, look, I was... Uh, before I was prime minister, I was foreign minister. And before I was that, I was on the board of the uranium company. And if there's one thing I know, it is that we could not sell uranium to the Iraqis because of all the sanctions that were imposed. 
And, um, and in fact, we saw him just wanted the president to go visit Saddam. That's all the trip was about. But it got ginned up and, and, uh, and um, it, as it turns out, um, uh, the memo on my trip but, uh, mentioned that the uh, minister uh, had said the Iranians at one point um, expressed some interest, casual interest in the Iranian business. And that ended up, um, somebody in the system decided that uh, I-R-A-N really meant I-R-A-Q. And it ended up being published in the Washington Post that I'd come back and, and said that the Iraqis had in fact asked for uranium. And I had to go in and correct them a little bit on that, that it was really the Iranians, not the Iraqis. But. So it was clear that this yellow cake thing was false. What I told the government when I came back was, look, you don't have to take my word for it. Um, but if you want to know anything more about this, uh, don't go back to Niger. Go to France, because they're the ones who are the managing partner. They're the ones who are the operating partner. Of the uranium mine. Of mines. the uranium mine, yeah. There are, there are five partners. There are, there are two different consortiums, five, five partners in each one. And in each one, the managing partner the guys who actually have their hands on the uranium from the time it comes out of the, out of the, uh, out of the mountain till the time it gets to the buyer are the French. So I said, um, I said, go see the French. They, they will, you know, they will know all. They will have all the accounting. They will know all the books. They'll be able to, to do everything. Because we were talking at that time about a 20% annual increase in the production of the mines in order to accommodate the so-called order that the Iraqis uh, um, claimed to be, that they were claiming the Iraqis were trying to execute. Now, in a place like um, Niger, a 20% increase in, in the main sector of their economy is huge. It means more trucks on the road, it means more barrels, it means more shipping through the port cities of the coast of Benin and, and Togo. It means more revenue into the uh, Ministry of Finances. That translates into more new cars for the bureaucrats and just more wealth flowing through the economy. You can't hide that. So you come back. It's clear to the CIA now that there's this yellow cake thing. So I told them, go see the French. And about six months later, um, an old French friend of mine, a diplomat with with intelligence ties, comes to Paris, or comes to Washington, and he's staying at the French ambassador's residence. He calls me up and says, I'd like to come by and see you. I said, sure, come by for breakfast. He comes by for breakfast the next day. He goes, uh, I just want you to know that um, um, after you made your trip to Niger, the CIA asked us what we thought about it. And we did exactly the same investigation you did, and we came to exactly the same conclusion and we told the CIA that. Larry Wilkerson told me that when he was working for Colin Powell in state, they got to see President Bush's next State of the Union, saw those 16 words referring to the yellow cake and advised to take them out, and then Bush makes the speech and they're in. The British government has learned that Saddam Hussein recently sought significant quantities of uranium from Africa which is one of many absolute knowing lies. Yep. 
Now, perhaps a million people were killed in this Iraq war, yeah. and the devastation is not over today. Perhaps the biggest uh, migration crisis on the planet, uh, a society that's been essentially destroyed. There's been no consequences for any of these people that out and out lied the way to war. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they should be in The Hague, basically. They should be being prosecuted for war crimes and crimes against humanity. There's no doubt in my mind. And uh, I can tell you that, um, that some of my deepest friendships have been broken over uh, the willingness of uh, my interlocutor to cut these guys some slack. Um, as I've said to people, um, you want to ride with war criminals, you don't get to stride this globe with me. It's as simple as that. And they are. And one of those war criminals is now the national security advisor yes. of the president of the United States. Yep. John Bolton. Yep. And when he was at the State Department running his little neoconservative cell, in his spare time, he was engaged in a, uh, in a ruthless character assassination campaign against me and my good name. When you got back and the yellow cake story after, broke. After the story broke, yeah. Greg Thielman, who you mentioned, mm-hmm. reported to Bolton. Yeah. And Thielman told me a few years ago that three times Bolton brought him in and says, where's the weapons of mass destruction? And three times Thielman says, well, there aren't any as far as we know. We're pretty convinced there aren't any. Yeah. And eventually Bolton says to him, well, then we don't need you at the briefings anymore. Yeah. Um, Bolton was there to make a fictitious case. Yep. That's exactly right. I've always had this idea that they weren't entirely, they being the neocons, weren't entirely sure if Saddam didn't have biological weapons, that maybe there were. And one of the things they needed to know before the invasion was to make sure there actually weren't any. And one of the things the inspections did by proving that there weren't any, it said it's actually okay to invade. What do you think of that? Oh, I think they were going to invade anyway. I, I think that, um, that the whole thing was just a ruse. I, I, I don't think anybody ever thought that the biological program, if there was one that existed, was big enough to get outside the, 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 the sort of the experimental laboratory. And biological weapons, there is a, um, there is sort of a natural limit to biological weapons effectiveness. If you unleash a biological weapon, you've got to be sure you're upwind. And, um, and there's sort of a limit. You, know, you can contain it. And the same thing with chemical weapons. But the idea that they had, like Colin Powell says, they have Scud yeah. missiles pointed at Israel with biological weapons. Yeah. They knew that was BS. It was a juggernaut. They knew what they wanted to do from day one. Uh, I think Dick Clark's got it uh, exactly right when uh, he talks about the first meeting and, and, uh, and Wolfowitz and Rumsfeld try and shift from Afghanistan, the uh, first meeting after 9-11, and they try and shift from, uh, from um, Afghanistan to Iraq. And Rumsfeld famously says, uh, well, there's nothing to bomb in Afghanistan, so we have to go to Iraq. And, and they, they were, and Wolfowitz, when they were up at Camp David that first weekend, Wolfowitz, every, every step of the way, changed the subject to Baghdad and Iraq. They had this in their mind from the get-go. Um, 
there's a the 9-11 created the context for it it created the opportunity yeah so i, I interviewed senator bob graham <laughs> who says outright says this is senator who's the head of the senate intelligence committee who was co-chair of the congressional investigation into 9-11 mm-hmm. and he out and out says that he thinks cheney bush slash let it happen they knew something was coming and they had very close relations with Prince Bandar, the Saudi ambassador to the United States. And in the 28 pages that finally got released from the congressional investigation, Bandar's all over these pages and the, his connection. Uh, there's a fair, I mean, Graham certainly thinks Bandar had a direct connection. Look, I have, um, I have enormous respect for Bob Graham. And uh, he and I have... Uh, have gone over this um, several times when we were both in Washington. Um, And I have no reason to doubt his judgment. I just can't take you that far. If you are right that that Bandar knew this was going on, then he's sitting meeting with his friend, President Bush, regularly in the days leading up to 9-11 and either not saying anything or, or somehow does. Uh, I mean, I know you know there's, there's a lot of theory and, and, and I think a lot of evidence that would at least require an inquiry that there's a deliberate intent not to know. It's not just lack of, it's not just incompetency. And, and, and I mean, to believe that it's just incompetency, then you have to think it's, it's like the uh, Keystone Cop of intelligence agencies. They're just tripping all over each other. But but that seems hard to believe. Well, and also the fact that it was so pervasive that that virtually all of the agencies of the federal government uh, were moving in the same direction from a customs agent at an airport in Orlando who was chastised when he uh, denied entry in the United States to a Saudi uh, to uh, the President of the United States authorizing large numbers of Saudis uh, to leave the country, possibly denying us forever uh, important insights and information on what happened. Uh, the, you don't have everybody uh, moving in the same direction without there being uh, a head coach somewhere uh, who is giving them instructions as to where he wants them to move. So that includes before and after the events? Uh, primarily before the event. After the event, it shifts from being uh, an, an action that supports uh, the activities of the uh, Saudis uh, to actions that cover up uh, the results of that permission given to the Saudis to act. So could you explain particularly this last, this last two couple of sentences? primarily before the event, after the event, it's just from being an action that supports the activities to the Saudis to actions that cover up the results of that permission given to the Saudis to act. So can you elaborate on that? Well, and and I'll get to the why uh, question. Why would the U.S. government have done this? And let me say, uh, I no longer use the words cover up to describe what's going on. Uh, I find more accurately the words aggressive deception. Uh, The federal government has attempted to rewrite the narrative of 9-11 in order to exclude 
the role of the Saudis from that uh, horrific story. Uh, why did they do it? If you'll recall, uh, at the World Trade Center uh, after 9-11, the president uh, with a bullhorn uh, said words to the effect that we are going to follow anyone uh, who was found to have been in any way connected to this uh, uh, murder uh, and that we will follow them to the ends of the earth. Uh, pretty strong uh, words. Uh, and certainly shortly thereafter, much of the information that you have uh, outlined uh, became available to the president. Problem. The president wanted to go to war with Iraq, uh, and he is he has painted uh, at the site at the site of the crime uh, a, a path that looks like it's going directly uh, to the Saudis, uh, but that's not the destination he wants. So what do you do? You have to to suppress all the information that would uh, cause people to think that the Saudis were the people that he was talking about uh, with the bullhorn at the World Trade Center and get the country prepared and willing to go to war against a country which was subsequently found out to have not virtually, if not totally, nothing to do. Right, with but Bob, I know you have to leave, uh, but so let me just, I just want to focus on this line. You don't have everybody moving in the same direction without there being a head coach somewhere who's giving them instructions as to where he wants them to move. And that's in reference to me talking about the various examples of American intelligence agencies that in fact did generate intelligence that could have prevented 9-11 if it had been followed up. And I had asked you if there was a deliberate culture created to the American intelligence agencies of not wanting to know, which, which in itself could prohibit the sharing of information that people talk about. You mentioned to me in this interview that in the uh, famous memo, Bin Laden plans to attack the United States, that in, in the subsequent memo that usually goes out to heads of agencies, that that was omitted, which one would think would have gone to head of agencies in order to take precautions. Uh, you mentioned the, uh, immig the immigration, uh, the, the border official who's chastised. This was because there had been a, a, a guideline handed down from the White House, if I understand it correctly, not to stop Saudis from coming into the country, even if under normal protocol, you would have stopped them. So, so who's the coach? Well, I think the coach is the president of the United States. Uh, uh, he's the only one who could have uh, commanded uh, agencies from the Department of uh, State to the Treasury Department to the intelligence uh, community to the FBI and other law enforcement agencies to all act in the same uh, manner because they are all ultimately responsible to the president. Let me ask you this, because when I've told people this, what Graham says, and we've reported on this story, I get most people react with, oh, come on, a vice president would never allow the killing of American citizens. Yep. And um, I'm one of those who would have said that uh, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Um, I, I'm not I can't say that anymore. All right, please join us for the next segment of our discussion with Ambassador Joe Wilson on Reality Asserts Itself. <laughs> <laughs>